What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. It is Monday, July 25th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nikki, happy Monday. Happy Monday, y'all. It's a great day to have a good day. I am on vacation this week. We're doing a little time traveling. We recorded this in advance. We recorded the upcoming episode Friday in advance. You are still getting your sweet, sweet content that you love and that you crave from the good folks over at the planet today. But I am probably drinking some water on the beach. <laughs> Just water, nothing to see here. Not No cocktail, no beer, <laughs> nothing. Just tanning drinking water staying hydrated love it that's where you know that nick has too much faith in me because i do not (laughs) tan i burn baby (laughs) (laughs) all right let's have a good show and uh yeah let's get into that right now Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way on Monday and Friday. Yes, and don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you can, whenever you can, and make sure to share our show with your friends, even if you have just one friend. Share with them. Make sure they listen. Everybody shares with one friend. We double our listeners, so that'd be that'd be excellent. Boom. If you also want to help us out, go comment on our TikTok videos. You could say, like, great video. This was informative. Matt, please shave. Or, Matt, I like your goatee. <laughs> more comments, the more likely TikTok is to promote it, so help us out. All right, let's do this thing. A report came out last month that suggested climate change could increase both the likelihood and the duration of armed conflicts throughout African regions. The study was conducted by a team of researchers from the Ingenio Institute, which is a joint research center of the Spanish National Research Council and the Universitat Politecnica de Valencia. It found that rises in temperature and prolonged precipitation would increase the probability of armed conflict by four to five times in certain regions. Rises in temperature and prolonged precipitation are both symptoms of climate change. Some of the examples that the article lists are the changes in climate would require different adaptation policies in different regions. So in areas that are more prone to drought, leaders would have to consider water rights and access to water and how that can relate to conflicts. In areas that are prone to flooding, leaders need to consider flooding's impact on food availability and infrastructure. For some, this means finding a way to acquire new resources. Yeah, and the first article in your show notes says, as increases in droughts and storm events have led to rampant food shortages throughout the continent, Consoli and fellow Ingenio researchers called for peacekeeping measures to be implemented in areas most susceptible to armed conflict. So we have to think about what drives conflict and what issues can be exacerbated by conflicts. In this case, we're talking about what pushes people or groups of people to armed conflict. Lack of safe drinking water, food scarcity, political instability, income inequality, etc. 
are just some of the causes of armed conflict. And in this case, all of those mentioned are either a symptom of climate change or something that climate change can make way worse. So for someone out there who's like, wait, how does climate change impact income inequality? People like Jeff Bezos are going to be kind of fine when it comes to climate change. You know, they're still going to be making their money. Farmers who rely on fertile soil to grow crops for their family, those are your people who are going to struggle more. So it's just going to really take this gap that we already have between the world's wealthiest and the world's poorest and just make that way, way more than we can currently imagine. Yeah, definitely. And like when you don't even have like safe drinking water to rely on or, um, you know, you're not sure how you're going to make your ends meet or how you're going to put food on your family's table. I mean, that's automatically going to just on a social level, like you're just going to have people being more stressed and more susceptible to fighting for natural resources. Yeah. You know, people get desperate. You can't put water on your table because you have no clean water because all of the water sources in your town and your town's greater area are now dried up. You get desperate. You need water to survive. You need food to survive. So that's what's going to drive people to say, hey, we need to go out and we need to get more resources because our people are starving and our people are thirsty and our crops are failing. So we mentioned how armed conflict can exacerbate some issues caused by climate change. What happens when country A has arid former farmland and then invades country B to claim their still fertile farmland? It's not like that land is going to come out unscathed. And that's just one example that we can get into. Like those countries that get invaded are going to be worse off even if they win. And all of a sudden that abundant farmland isn't as abundant anymore. Yeah, exactly. And another article in your show notes talks about how armed conflict increases food insecurity, according to the International Committee of the Red Cross. One example of this is how two years of conflict in northern Ethiopia's Tigray region has left millions facing famine-like conditions and created a hunger crisis in neighboring regions. And unfortunately, many of the countries that are currently dealing with conflict are also those that are most affected by climate change. So they're going to continue to be the most impacted by climate change moving forward. Drought also impacts animal-based proteins because they rely on crops for food. So it's not just fruits and veggies that are impacted by drought. Yeah, you know, I just talked about crop failure and how that's going to impact food availability, but this is another thing to consider. Meat-based diets also rely on fruits and vegetables because of the things that those animals are eating. All right, so switching gears, conflict has a greater impact on climate change than just impacting farmable land. So I want to dive into the carbon emissions of the U.S. military a little bit and you can just assume that since the United States has the largest military in the world, that other countries have some sort of scalable carbon emissions based on the size of them, their military, you know, by the same metric, pretty much. No one knows exactly how much carbon the U.S. military emits into the atmosphere every year because the Pentagon's reporting on this isn't entirely clear. But the emissions are greater than that of Denmark, Portugal and obviously other smaller countries. Yeah, so a single Humvee gets between four to eight miles per gallon, and an F-35 aircraft requires 2.37 gallons of fuel for every mile it travels. The United States does not report military emissions to the United Nations, 
part of their emissions come from the U.S. military's property, which includes a lot of buildings that all need to be powered and heated. The Defense Department had roughly 585,000 facilities across 160 countries as of 2018. Each of these buildings emits greenhouse gases. So as more renewable energy gets rolled out internationally, this is something that could be lowered. But what about fighter jets? And are there going to be electric vehicle Humvees anytime soon? You know, this is a really tough sector to lower emissions for. And an increase in armed conflict likely means an increase in these emissions as well. So it's not like just climate change is creating armed conflict, but armed conflict contributes to the cycle of climate change as well. Yeah, and it's it's a tough road to run down because it's like, I feel like countries will, generally speaking, do pretty much everything for their defense. And I'm thinking about a Humvee that's an EV and it can only ride for, let's say, like 450 miles or something like that. If that, because it's so it's four to eight miles per gallon, is that functional for, let's say we have to invade an area that's 500 miles away? You know, oh, well, we don't have time to recharge our, our Humvees. So we're not going to be able to make it there. I don't know. It's just, it is a tough, like you said, it's a tough sector to lower emissions for because there's so much on the line. There's lives at stake. So, yeah, but my thinking is for a longer trip like that, are you going to be using the Humvees or are you going to be using transport airplanes, which, you know, same issue, right? Like unless we have electric vehicle transport planes, then we're having the same conversation. But yeah, I, I get your point. You know, it's, it's tough to, to take something like this where like, lives are on the line and say we need to lower our emissions but that being said if we don't lower our emissions lives are on the line either way so this is you know it's an important piece of the puzzle that often gets overlooked unfortunately yeah the real issue is kylie jenner and travis scott having two private jets and then cho- having to choose between which one they're going to take dude she took a three minute private jet plane ride last week or the week before like that's so annoying <laughs> like that's more so i forget how many um CO2 emissions it put out, but it was more than a lot of people put out in one year for her three minute plane ride, which is just, it's so wasteful. It's extremely wasteful. And, um, my girlfriend told me about this, I think yesterday, but like it was a 40, what could have been a 40 minute drive. It could have been a 40 minute drive and you had to take a flight. You had to take a three minute flight. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, God, I don't even. I don't want to bring them up on the show because they don't deserve the publicity, but they're getting it anyway. So whatever. Tax the rich. When we get back, climate <laughs> refugees. Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief. It's a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT.
Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And before the break, we covered how climate change could lead to increased armed conflicts. Now we're going to talk about climate refugees. And it's important to note that as of right now, climate refugees are not refugees under the United Nations definition of the word. Climate change is already a leading cause of forced displacement and environmental or climate refugees are sometimes called the world's forgotten victims because of this. Climate refugees are broken up into three categories. One is environmental emergency migrants, those who temporarily flee due to hurricanes, earthquakes, etc. Number two is environmental forced migrants, those who flee their homes due to worsening conditions such as coastal deterioration and deforestation. And three is environmental motivated migrants, so those who leave to avoid future problems, such as a farmer leaving because of declining crop production due to desertification. All of those are predicted to increase due to climate change. So the climate refugee issue will only get worse as the climate itself worsens. This is why there's a big push to start calling climate migrants, as they're sometimes called now, climate refugees. Offering refugee status to these people will give refugee protections to them as well. And while it's hard to estimate the number of climate change refugees, we do know that vulnerable groups are more susceptible to climate change and for that reason, more likely to flee their homes. Yeah, and when fleeing their homes, there's no guarantee that people will be offered safe travels and will be even accepted into other countries. A study titled, Who Takes Responsibility for Climate Refugees, found that the top 20 countries accounted for 82% of the total global carbon emissions. So we're basically displacing them and then potentially not even offering them a place to stay. Yeah, it's like, sorry we we ruined your home over the last 100 years while we were industrializing. look, Look how pretty our pictures of our skylines look. Oh, you want to come see it in person? Sorry, we just ran out. Yeah, seriously. The authors suggested that those countries should take on more responsibility and more refugees than others. So under this model, the United States and Australia would take 10% of the global climate refugees with Saudi Arabia and Canada taking on 9%, South Korea taking on 7%, and Germany, Russia, and Japan accepting 6% of climate refugees. Would this happen Who knows? You know, we've seen the way that some industrialized nations treat political refugees, and I worry that this would be extended to climate refugees as this problem starts to get worse. And the issue here for me is that in some of those countries, you know, I'm looking at the U.S., Australia, Canada, less so in Germany, but still more than some of the others. There's this group of people who don't think climate change is a real issue. So how are we going to expect all of those citizens to, you know, accept climate refugees with open arms? Yeah, I looped all of them together. The U.S. is above and beyond worse than the rest when it comes to not believing climate scientists. But, you know, it is worth pointing out that there are several countries that also have this issue. Yeah, I always think it's funny when, like, the people who are saying, like, oh, you know, we can't accept refugees from anywhere. And, like, you're an immigrant. Like, all of us are immigrants. We're all from somewhere, generally speaking, in the U.S. Yeah. So it's like, we are the ones who displace these people, and we're not going to allow them to to find refuge here. 
it makes absolutely no sense to me. And like, I get it. We can't accept. I don't know if we could take 10% of the climate refugees. I guess it kind of depends on the actual numbers when it comes down to it. But just in terms of like space. But yeah, I mean, if we can accept them, we need to because we started the issue. And I think I think if we can't, then we need to find a way. You know what I mean? It's, it's obviously easier, easier said than done, but the United States, it might not be the global leader in carbon emissions per year over the last several years, but in terms of historical emissions, we're still number one and it's not particularly close. Like yeah. China and India are pumping out more CO2 than us now, but if you talk about from you know 1900 until today, we're number one. <laughs> so you know, like it's, it's tough to say that we can't take in 10% knowing that we've caused at least 10% of the, of the damage here. So yeah, I get what you're saying. You know, it's going to be tough to convince people to do that, but build vertically, you know what I mean? Build more multifamily housing in the suburbs, like build more areas that, you know, more people can live in. I, I know that cities get a bad rap for not having a lot of trees, but we can design, you know, that perfect blend of, of, I really like the idea of taking, you know, more houses in the suburbs that are on big plots of land. And that small house that someone lived in for a hundred years that is going to get knocked down and built with a newer house, make it a three family house and make it so that people can live there without, you know, this huge footprint for every single family. Yeah. Like there's, there's urban planning solutions here that can make the climate refugee issue a little bit more palatable. Yeah, agreed. If you think that people being displaced are only going to be coming from developing nations to industrialized nations, then we're going to have to think again here because most U.S. cities are currently underprepared for rising heat, according to The Hill's Shirin Ali. This summer will feature record high temperatures and heat waves for much of the country. The National Weather Service issued excessive heat warnings and heat advisories for several areas in the southern and western U.S. This is after a three-month national outlook that said almost the entire country would experience above-average summer temperatures. In other words, it is hot. And I say that kind of jokingly, but heat can be really serious. The CDC estimates that over 600 people are killed by high temperatures every year, especially in lower-income households. A recent study analyzed 50 large U.S. cities and found that 78% of them mentioned heat as a problem, but very few offered strategies for how to address that heat. Even fewer addressed the way that heat disproportionately impacts lower-income residents or communities of color. An example that researchers noted said that providing shade outdoors is an effective way to protect people from sunlight exposure, but only a few cities mentioned shade in their municipal plans. So one final quote from that article says that one state is turning the responsibility to consumers to help alleviate risks of record temperatures with the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, a company that manages roughly 85% of Texas's electricity delivery, asking residents and businesses to conserve their power usage on Monday. That's because the state is expecting average temperatures of 110 to 114 degrees. So, look, it's highly likely that unless cities can start addressing the increasing heat caused by climate change, we're going to have people who are fleeing cities for areas with more trees. Like, if you can't afford to power your air conditioning all day, are you just going to sit there in 114 degree weather? Like, you're going to have to escape that. And one way to do that is to sell your home, 
and move somewhere with shade cover. My concern here is what happens when more and more people try to move and we need more and more housing. So what happens to those trees? And that's sort of why I brought up multifamily housing before, because I recognize that a lot of people are going to want shade and a great place to get shade is in rural areas and the suburbs. And when building out those areas, you know, we have two options. Everyone gets, you know, what was it? 40 acres and a mule back in the day with the Homestead Act. (laughs) Everyone gets an acre and a plot of land and a house with trees or take one acre, build a three story house that's wide and has, you know, two multifamily units on each floor. All of a sudden, that's six families that can live there. And sure, that's an issue for your septic and your water usage locally, but it's doing a lot less ground disturbance, a lot less tree removal than if all six of those families bought some small house out on a big plot of land. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not an urban planner, but I like the idea of multifamily housing. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like a, a better way to, to fix this issue. And and like you said, it's it's a self-destructive process because, yeah, we need the more we need more space for people to move into to these houses and whatever. But if the end result is cutting down more trees, well, then we're just going to have a new Texas. We're building a new Texas at that point. Yeah. The desertification process is is beginning. And like we talk about how, you know, soil is so important and how foliage and grass and trees accounts for so much carbon capture. You need that. You need that greenery in order to take in the sun's rays and also to store the carbon that's produced. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're bringing up carbon sequestration. It's important to note that mature trees sequester more carbon than a sapling, you know, over that first year. So if you're going to reforest an area, sure, that sapling is going to take in more carbon over its lifetime, probably because that other tree is probably closer to dying. But most of the time, it makes more sense to just leave mature trees up, providing shade, sequestering carbon. So, yeah, I mean, the answer can't just be move out of your hot city into an area where you're going to have to clear trees to build a home. It, it, it takes a lot. So yeah. All right. That will do it for today's episode of TPT. We're going to be back on Friday for a bonus interview with Tara Lordy and Bobby O'Shields of we do boats until then follow our socials at planet today pod for more TPT for the planet today. I'm Matt Norton and I'm Nick Janusa. See you on Friday. Peace. Peace.